0: Chapter 10 Men, Masculinity and Discipleship by David Augsburger At the outset, it must be clearly said before anything else, in speaking of male identity and masculinity, one must pause to recognize the culturally substantiated traditions of gender inequality, the false claims to privilege and rights assumed by males that have abused women oppressed minorities, excused exploitative acts and attitudes, distorted relationships, and empowered social rules. All of these violate the central tenets of discipleship. Everything in this chapter stands in radical opposition to any assumptions of male dominance, privilege, right to power, and initiative. In light of these realities, this chapter proposes 1 that a man to be truly human must examine, redefine, and redirect the core concepts of masculinity learned from family, community, faith, and culture to make them authentically his own, and 2 that he does this by apprenticing himself to a guide. It argues that 3 that most popular guides are superficial. Many are untrustworthy, and only a limited number have proven to be enduring and worthy of life. In particular, it explores 4. The Radical and Revolutionary Potential of Discipleship to the Most Original Model and Co-Traveler, Jesus. A Story of Level Relationships We pull up at the White Lane exit from The 99 in Bakersfield. A sunburned young man, 30-ish, is holding a cardboard sign. I dig for my wallet as the light holds back the rush. I toss it to Leanne. She fishes out paper. We pull up to him, and he looks up, more surprised by our red smart car than by the gift. We grin, he grins, we buzz off. "'Did you do that in memory of Hal?' Leanne asks. "'Consciously, no. Unconsciously, yes.' It has been little more than a week since Hal met us at Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport, then after a quick stop at Starbucks, hurried us to Trinity Mennonite Church to prepare for the morning service. At an interchange en route, a man stood waving a cardboard sign. Hal pulls over, reaches to a ready kitty, and hands the man some cash, saying, Here you go, buddy. Warm, equal, like passing grub at a campout. No condescension of charitable giving, no strings in moral or religious attachment. It is the tone of passing the food down a breadline. I recall that he spent years working on the streets. I admire his modeling a flattened playing field. A week later, Hal is gone. His life is dashed into a motorcycle crash. We are in Phoenix for Hal again, this time for the memorial service. The obituary reads, Hal Lee Schrader, 1967-2015. to It is hard. Hard like Hal defined hard times. Once, when helping his daughters do math homework, he answered the complaint, But Daddy, it's hard! with one of his classic one-liners. Hard things are hard. As we drive to the church, the man is still waiting by the exit lane. Same man? We cannot tell. We hand him the bill with Hal's words, Here you go, buddy. And he replies, Gotcha. Gotcha? We will think about that. What did he get? A tone of the voice that breathed level respect, and he gave it back. Gotcha. At the service, there are dozens of literal reminders of why we loved Hal so much. But for the thousand people gathered... The opening line said what needed to be said. Welcome to this service of remembrance. You are all here because Hal welcomed you, welcomed you into his life, into the circle of loving acceptance. In his life as a theologian, pastor, prophet, agitator, peacemaker, reconciler, father, spouse, friend, disciple, Hal said a lot of insightful and wise things, but perhaps none was better than the level words, Here you go, buddy. Finding a Story Worth Dying For Each of us finds a story with the power to shape life. The size, the depth, the width of the story determines the dimensions of the life that follows. If one, like Hal Schrader, chooses a story of solidarity with humankind rather than just mankind, a story of level relationships in a world of hierarchy and ranked order, a story of mutuality in a world of egocentricity, then one chooses a compassionate story that explodes primal masculinity to become authentic humanity. Jesus' followers call such a self-forgetful story that urges one onward the way of discipleship. Coming to be a disciple is a matter of finding a centering story outside of one's self-story that captures the deep imagination of the soul. It is living out a personal drama that promises much more than self-fulfillment. It is joining a social drama that offers a community of co-travelers who find a reason for being in a shared story. As storytelling creatures, we live not by those stories that we possess, but by the stories that possess us. It is not so much that I choose a story to live by, but rather that a story captures my deeper loyalty and compels me to invest all in its pursuit. It is more like falling in love with a person than like adopting a life narrative. It is out of response to the discovery that we live in a friendly and not hostile universe on a visited and not an isolated planet with a God-given destiny and not a self-driven success drama. Family and community are primary story sources. We may choose a story contiguous and consistent with our family's values, or we may break away and embrace a script from peers or the opinion leaders around us. We may not know the source of our story or when we adopted it or first obeyed its guidance. We may have absorbed it unaware from family of origin or communal context of childhood and youth. We may follow its commands and prohibitions without questioning their authority or authenticity. Then, as identity forms, a conscious story may come to replace the unconscious narrative that we absorbed and obeyed. One story identifies who a man is, selfhood what masculinity should be, gender and role, how one should live, ethics and morals, and what it means, faith and conviction. If a man comes from a military family where generations of males have found identity and life purpose by joining a marine or navy or air force story— then the discipline provided by the narrative of location and loyalty in the violent tradition of a nation-state makes a man of you, it is said. It was my destiny, a student tells me. I knew from childhood that I would win those stripes. If a man comes from An agricultural family where the farm has provided a grounded story for grandfather, father, and now self. The story of harvesting the earth, reaping its produce, nurturing the soil, living by the seasons, and moving from seed time to harvest, shapes vision, thought, values. Standing between rows of grapes, a man declares to me, I don't know when I began to love the soil. It is in our blood. If a man comes from generations of factory workers or bankers, miners or military, builders or wreckers, salesmen or educators, healers or legal gatekeepers, each provides a story with its model characters, life plot, and lifelong progress towards a denouement. I admired what my dad did. The narrow range of stories that once guided men within predestined traditions of family, tribe, and community have opened wide possibilities as social change, education, and mobility offered alternatives to simply mapping the past onto the future and enabled constructive selection of life directions, but the skeletal structures of character and principle, Pursuing justice, living out compassion, living out co-humanity, remain unchanged, although ambition, self-service, greed, and dominance regularly replace them as prime motivators. Success, the rags-to-riches myth. Conquest, the the return-of-the-hero myth. Greed the the gain-of-the-world myth, immortality, the star, idol, record-book myths, fame, the I'm-going-to-live-forever-they'll-remember-my-name myth, and all other strategies for safety and security substitute for faith, character, and moral conviction. The basic story of human existence undergirding and motivating all of the above, argues ethicist Stanley Voss is the ancient tale of humankind's quest for certainty, permanence, in a world of contingency, impermanence. Voss explains, this mythic pattern is told in the various dominant modern narratives. Ironically, the function of all accounts, is to tell a story that shows why we no longer need stories, to decree that stories are pre-scientific, according to the story legitimatizing the age which calls itself scientific. We have not outlived and cannot outgrow our need for stories to explain our lives to ourselves and to others in our deeper self-understanding, we do not give up the quest for a story that is worth dying for. Atheists affirm a story of a random universe. Believers, a story of purposive creation and creatures. Hedonists, a story of seizing pleasure as it flies. Nihilists, a story of destroying useless structures. Machiavellian's A Story of Claiming Dominance and Control as Ultimately Satisfying. Arguably the most compelling male story combines power, dominance, pleasure, and sensuality as the sacralization of sex, the pursuit of cyclical satisfaction of conquest, interpenetration of bodily warmth, the explosion of temporary fusion with the attractive other. That is the sacralized in becoming the most precious possibility, possession, potential in masculinity. Men worship the omnipresent, sacred symbols of sexuality, such as fashion, form, style, posture, figure, carriage, and gesture. In the male mind, the thought of sexual union is never far from the reverie and fantasy. The attractive other becomes the desired object and the pursued dream of conquest. Gender dominance has been the fatal flaw of the human species. Imagine a male whose essential story is one of lasting compassion rather than fleeting passion of consistent respect for all others rather than constant rating of others' sexual desirability. What kind of man would this be? What sort of story would shape such a life of masculinity as true humanity? A discipleship story is a matter of companionship, of coming to trust, prize, value, and love the central figure of the story, the master and choosing to join oneself with Him and His agenda. For followers of Jesus, it begins with the discovery that we are irreducibly valuable and undeniably loved by God, and in response to that love, we get up and follow. It is not an employer-employee relationship where one earns the benefits. It is discovering that true loving relationship is grace, is gift, is grounded in trust and in response to a greater love. The masculine tendency to measure all things by what is accomplished, to value what is gained through achievement, must be laid aside as one becomes a disciple of Jesus. Which human story is worthy of a life? Can one find in enduring story a to-be-continued account that does not end arbitrarily or vacuously? Theologian James McClendon ends his masterful volume, Ethics, with his splendid words on the essential nature of fitting one's life into a mega-story. Two essential Christian convictions must round out the account. One is the conviction, call it the doctrine of the Israel of God, that my own story is inadequate, taken alone and is hungry for a wider story to complete it. That gives us the communitarian element in Christian ethics. My story must be linked with the story of a people. The other is the conviction, call it the doctrine of salvation, that our story is inadequate as well. The story of each and all is itself hungry for a greater story that overcomes our persistent self-deceit, redeems our common life, and provides a way for us to be a people among all earth's peoples without subtracting from the significance of others' peoplehood, their own stories, their lives. Christian ethics, because its truth entails character, must find that truth in a community that is of necessity story-shaped. Christian morality involves us, necessarily involves us, in the story of God. In search of a life story, postmodern minds find a dismaying array of popular models and mentors. Many traditional models have lost their appeal. Many no longer offer hope and get tossed into the dustbins of history. Christianity has lost its promise for many. Jesus remains cogent and compelling, although the contradictory versions and the self-serving practices of many claiming to be followers of Jesus are dismaying. Jesus has been sentimentalized, infantilized, co-opted, distorted, profaned, commercialized, and reconstructed into the image of movement upon movement. Which Jesus? One must ask to identify any reference. Who is he? Person or persona? Peace of mind panacea or disturbing prod to the conscience? Irrelevant ideal or unquenchable revolutionary? What is his call to discipleship? What does discipleship mean when he calls us to follow? As the linking voice between Hebrew prophets and the Jesus core group, the aesthetic John the Baptist quoted Isaiah. The Galilean, he promised, would upset the world's perspective on all values and virtues. If men, males, were to follow him, he would level the mountains of patriarchy, straighten the crooked paths of male entitlement smooth the rough places of blatant inequality, raise the valleys of oppression and exploitation, and, as the prophet envisioned, create a level playing field for all humankind. Disciples of the coming Galilean would join him in calling for justice and refusing all unjust advantage and edge, step away from the foot-up privilege to join in a new dance of mutuality where justice work begins. To be a disciple is to learn the discipline of relinquishment, to surrender special privilege, to give up entitlement. All these come with traditional gender rights. Jesus in no way supports such male presumption of systemic violence. Giving up your agenda and trusting Jesus with his. The parallel stories told by Mark and Matthew open with the signal announcement that Jesus appeared saying, Repent and believe in the good news. Mark chapter 1.15, Matthew 4.17 Repent may be an old word, but its meaning in contemporary language is to give up one's agendas, and the invitation that follows is to believe in the good news, or in other words, to trust Jesus for his. Turn. Give up your agendas and trust me for mine. Come. Join in self-giving sacrifice. Repudiate arrogance and dominance over others. Risk. What you seek to save you will lose. Defend it and you will destroy it. Connect. Truly connect with others in common life. Resist. Refuse the promises of safety and security through idolatry. Die. In counting egocentric agenda items as dead, we let go serially, progressively, in many little deaths that prepare us for the big one. Jesus' agenda, there is no king but Yahweh, and the reign of God is here, now. Join in. Israel's God is becoming king, but not in political theocracy. God will be king in the breakthrough of justice and compassion, according to Isaiah 2, a worldwide transforming people's movement of radical allegiance to a new way and a social revolution of moving from self-defense and exclusive self-care to equal care for others. He is calling us to action and ethics, not to mysticism and interiority, but to practice deeds of faithful love, the Hebrew mitzvot and mutuality, Hebrew hesed, Greek agape and koinonia. He is asking us to abandon any crazy dreams of a nationalist revolution based on force, violence, and abuse of power because it is too weak. It inevitably fails, and it betrays God's vocation to be the light of the world through self-giving neighbor and enemy love. This vision of Yahweh as king is like no other king in all human history. Jesus prays, Yahweh, King, Parent, may your reign come on earth. This King calls us to become the one true humanity, serving the one true God. Jesus offers an utterly new agenda. His agenda calls us to a radically new way of being. A way of creating change by claiming a new basis for happiness read the Beatitudes, a way of unconditional love, read the story of the Prodigal Son, a way of forgiving in love on the street, not in holy places and above all not reacting in retaliation and revenge, read Jesus' last words, a way of reverence and respect for the worth and preciousness of every woman, every man, Read the story of the Good Samaritan. A way of caring for the poor, the oppressed, the neglected, the unprotected. Read what he said about the orphan, widow, troubled mind, those he called the least of these. A way of prayer and reliance not on self-advancement and self-protection. Read the Night in Gethsemane account. An utterly risky way of being disciples, a way of turning the other cheek, walking a second mile. Read the Sermon on the Mount. A way of justice and jubilee, not entitlement and greed. Read Jesus' first sermon in Nazareth. A way of leveling entitlements and sharing breathing room, sharing the road with both men and women. Read all the accounts of his respect for women in a culture where they were presumed to have no souls. A way of renouncing xenophobia, including all considering no one as outside grace. Read of his visit to Samaria. A way of non-cooperation with oppression and violence. Read the Sermon on the Mount. A way of concern for the chronically ill and excluded pariahs. Read how he responded to mental and physical illness and undeified the demons so that they could go home again. A way of joining a fictive kinship group that includes the rough, the riffraff. Read of his twelve associates, the taxman Zacchaeus, shady woman Mary, alleged prostitutes, invisible lepers, despised aliens, Roman oppressors, mentally troubled. A way of confronting and correcting traditions of temple worship and going out to meet God among the people. Read of his roadside conversations, his Samaritan surprise, the cleansing of the temple. A way of breaking free from fear and a paranoid defense agenda. Read the accounts of his trial. A way of letting go of ancestral codes, rules, and laws. Read Mark's Gospel. A way of abandoning all other visions of empire and joining with his reign. Reevaluate who gets to create us, whose representation defines our lives, whose agenda sets our goals. Discipleship is embracing his way, his agenda, his dream. Discipleship as living out the teachings of Jesus can be separated neither from the cross nor from the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, nor from the path of suffering, nor from daily walking in the way we see in the Jesus story. That was his agenda. The temptation of Christendom has been to separate Jesus as Savior, our salvation through his transforming death and resurrection, From Jesus, the teacher above all teachers, the Lord beyond all Caesars, the example above all models of personhood and wholeness. Our embarrassment before the Sermon on the Mount has led to this giant leap from the incarnation of Christ to the Passion of Christ, while ignoring and omitting his life, teaching, and ministry, with the resultant loss of the soul of authentic discipleship. The call to return to the way of disciple comes most poignantly and powerfully in our day, not from within Christendom, but from Christianity in the eastern and southern hemispheres. A new commitment to faithful discipleship is voiced in these settings where opposition, persecution, and costly sacrifice are often inevitable for the believer. In accepting Jesus' agenda, We step into the footprints he has left behind and we follow him in life. This Man Named Jesus The late Clarence Bauman, my former teaching colleague at Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary, suffered for the last twenty years of his life from slowly advancing Parkinson's disease. Gradually his speech became more indistinct However, he would sit in on the oral examinations given to graduating master's students, and he often claimed the final question. Slowly, haltingly, he would ask for a fourfold puzzle Do you have a clear understanding of what belief in Jesus means? Or do you believe in Jesus? Or do you believe Jesus? Or do you believe what Jesus believed? The perceptive student realized that she or he had just been asked to talk about the wide differences among belief as 1. Orthodox definition, 2. Experiential petism, 3. Encounter and obedience, and 4. Radical discipleship. No amount of excellence in the answer to the first three would satisfy Bauman until the student had come to grips with the fourth. To believe what Jesus believed is to risk all, plunge into the heart of God's call to unconditional love, and choose a life of utter caring regardless of the cost or consequences in an uncaring world. Few Christians move beyond questions one and two in their understanding of Jesus. So the question must be asked again, who is this Jesus? He is not whoever we want him to be, the selfie mirror of our true selves, the idolized expression of our highest goals of personhood, the blank slate awaiting our list of perfect traits or states. He is not the IMAX screen for the projection and sacralization of our larger-than-life hopes and dreams of goodness as we visualize it in our own ideal image. When we recreate Jesus to be our imaginary ideal self, this is not only heretical but delusional, not just heresy but apostasy. Jesus is the unparalleled, unique, unrepeatable, radically human Other, so we are called to meet the Other who constantly confronts and challenges us while at the same time inviting us to repeat the unrepeatable. We are to imitate the inimitable, imitate the ultimate non-imitator. Who do we say this Jesus is? How far do we go in pursuit of him? Who is this man? A good man? A great teacher? A religious leader? A mystic companion? A sacrifice and savior? A perfect being? A moral exemplar? an ultimate master? What is his role in our lives? Ideal type? Wise prophet? Spiritual guide? Presence? Atoning offering? Model? Example? Lord? What is our role in this relationship? Admirer? Learner? Seeker? Friend? Believer? Imitator? Follower? dissident disciple? Where do we find this Jesus? In the person next to you. Who do I see? My neighbor. You want to see God? Look at your brother, said 2nd century Christian leader Chrysostom, quoting the epistle of 1 John. No idols, no pseudo sacred stand ins, no holy mannequins. Real people image God to us. Jesus recovers the prohibitions of the Jewish tradition that eliminate all images of God except one humanity. He is the truly human one. The neighbor stands before us as representative of humanity, as such the sacred embodiment of human life as humanity as a whole. The neighbor represents humankind, both as metaphor and as reality, as a particular human. Seeing the other as metaphor is recognizing the larger whole, the preciousness of our status as creatures. Seeing the particular neighbor is seeing the worth of the other. Do you mean that I may be ignoring Jesus when I pass by the homeless man who lives under the bridge? A Chinese seminarian asked my daughter Kate, who teaches at a theological seminary in Nanjing, China. Does that come to you as a new thought? she asked in reply. Oh yes, when you explained what Jesus meant by the words, The least of these, my heart sank. What I do to the least of these, in my world, I am doing to him? when I read the Chinese translation of the Gospels, I completely missed what this actually means. I will think about it every day. That is the struggle of a follower of Jesus. His agenda must become my agenda. This Act Called Following Following Jesus is not a cognitive act of assent to a proposition not adoption of a formulaic set of beliefs, but obeying the command to love. It is a moral, social, and political vow of tracking this Galilean prophet in his radical practices of compassion. It is not just to understand Jesus, but to follow him, not to cite a slogan or master a mantra, but to join a movement, to risk safety and security to follow a subversive agenda, to bear a cross. Discipleship is necessarily subversive and dissident because in following Jesus we defy and reject all popular images and stubbornly insist that in both the creation image and the incarnational image we see the divine image intended as the measure of humanity fully revealed in Jesus. This means that when we asked to replace Jesus with Constantine, or Caesar, Pentagon, Kremlin, etc., we say no. When invited to substitute any political project with the political vision of Jesus to act, serve, give, care, and compassion, we say no. We say no to any project that does not share in the face of need. Share is the word for redistributing needed food and clothes, and that calls us to share power, share opportunity, share the possibilities of creating a meaningful life, and share in common community. We thus say no to any social, political, ethical, or religious perspective that does not seek to love the enemy or demur from empire. Following Jesus means pursuing his stunningly creative politics his subversively transformative imagination and his agenda of rehumanization after the model of the sermon on the mount wherever and whenever anyone follows the jesus way of radical and utter humanization they follow the earth-shaking but largely overlooked humanism of the language of genesis they reject any image of the divine except the other Every man images the divine to us. Every woman is in the image of God. If one steps into this Jesus way of construing existence, we call discipleship, one makes a radical commitment to practice a life agenda that is rooted in the life of Jesus. In Christian usage, a disciple is a follower, learner, adherent of Jesus as master, teacher, lord. Matthew seven twenty eight to twenty nine, chapter eight twenty five, and Luke eight twenty-four. In Greek usage, the disciple was an apprentice, an adherent to the teaching of a particular school or person. In Hebrew there is no clear antecedent, with several possible references. Isaiah eight sixteen, first chronicles twenty five, eight. Although rabbinic practice taught through the teacher-disciple commitment for passing on wisdom and tradition. The Need for Co-Travelers Discipleship should not be tried alone. Even those who have few connections with other disciples connect with a community of fellow disciples through active conversation with the Gospels. The Epistles, the rich library of Christian classics— the friends afar who can be reached by media, and the one or two persons important to their lives who share the pursuit of Jesus. Following Jesus closely makes us hungry to connect with others, as did Jesus himself, to get together and learn from each other's constantly fresh discoveries. We are not human alone, but we need more than a nudge to keep connections tight. In his journals, Philip Halle, the chronicler of the French mountain village of Le Chambon, where a community of disciples led by André and Magda Trocome saved thousands of Jews from Nazi occupation, wrote his metaphor of human existence in words from his World War II experience. On July 18th, 1943, I spoke of moral support by means of two foxholes connected by a trench. Life is so very much like this. Each man in his foxhole follows the configurations of his own personality. But in one wall, there is a passage leading to his fellows. Every man's life is expressed in this metaphor. We live in our own little holes, but to be authentically human, we must constantly dig and daily clear those passages that lead us to our fellows. As we have maintained, discipleship is a friendship, a fellowship, a mutual ship, of joint service ship. We do not do it alone. When discipleship provides the paradigm for Christian living, then one sees the Church as a body of believers, disciples, who commit themselves to following Jesus Christ together. It roots the identity of the Church in the New Testament disciple story, extends it as a contemporary, culturally appropriate expression of the biblical story of communal faith and links the practice of being the church today to the church portrayed in the biblical account of Acts and the epistles. The emphasis on imitation participation creates a close continuity between the biblical accounts of the disciples' attachments to Jesus and the believing community's current pursuits of a similar attachment. No one can know Christ truly except those who follow him daily in life wrote Hans Denck, a 16th-century Anabaptist theologian and martyr. Discipleship as Radical Obedience Discipleship is entirely rooted in and dependent on Christ. One is a disciple to Jesus Christ, not to a theory, theology, or lifestyle. Discipleship means accepting authority offered in Jesus' characteristic humility with compassion that transforms the act of caring to a moment of God's grace. In the turbulent years of the 1930s, German Lutheran theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer articulated a radical theology of discipleship in his classic book, Nachfolge, Discipleship that offered an impassioned call to follow Jesus Christ in a personal and corporate obedience that was guided by Jesus' own teaching, example, and radical obedience to his Father. Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ, wrote Bonhoeffer. Linking discipleship to radical obedience to Christ, he pronounced the dictum, Only the believers obey, and only the obedient believe. He insisted that Jesus didn't simply teach personal, moral, vocational, relational, and devotional obedience, which is more easily assimilated into traditional religious categories of practice and thought, but he required political and ultimately life-and-death obedience. Bonhoeffer contrasted cheap and costly grace. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which one must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs our lives. It is grace because it gives us the only true life. Evidence suggests that Bonhoeffer's pursuit of a courageous ethic led him to give up his earlier position of the nonviolence of the Sermon on the Mount and support an attempt to remove Hitler from office. He was one of the last persons to be executed before the suicide of de Fuhr. Whether or not one agrees with his choice to take another's life, one cannot escape acknowledging the radical obedience of his faith and life in his years of risky and subversive action. Bonhoeffer's costly discipleship has had a strong influence on many other theologians who have written incisively on his discipleship including Jürgen Moltmann, Stanley Hauerwas, James McClendon, Miroslav Volf, Glenn Stassen, and movement leaders such as Ron Sider, Jim Wallace, Lee Camp, and Brian McLaren. The wide recognition of the centrality of discipleship as the heart of faithful obedience to Christ appears in theologies emerging from Asia, Africa, and Latin America. Wherever discipleship is taught, the call is to follow Jesus, not just to admire or respect him. He is commander of our lives, not just someone to be depended on for a special spiritual transaction called salvation. Discipleship as Death and Resurrection Discipleship to Jesus means following a leader from long ago whom we claim is our contemporary, Through the mystery, believers call the resurrection. If one is a disciple to this Jesus whose life history ends in an empty grave story, if the disjunction with the old life and the conjunction with the new way of being is true, then it matters above all else. As I've said many times over the years, if the resurrection is true, nothing else matters. If the resurrection is not true, nothing matters. If the Jesus story is true, if it calls to you to walk with him and pick up his practices in discipleship, then it matters more than anything else. If it is not true, then everything else matters only for the time being. St. Paul put the syllogism a bit differently when writing to the disciples of Colossae, if you as a disciple have been raised with Christ, and that is exactly what your dying and raising in the pledge of baptism means, then live out the love of Christ, the radical, self-giving, earth-transcending, self-forgetful care for neighbor, stranger, enemy, brother, sister, that creates a stubborn, resilient, reconciling community if you have been sprung from the prison of death to run freely in the open world of God's confidence, then go out and do it joyfully. Colossians 3, 1-3, authors paraphrase. The contrast is clear. You have died. You have been raised. You have died to the old values, to the old defensiveness to the old competitiveness that leads to conflict, to the desire to win. You have been raised to collaborating. You have died to the old life of seeking your own way, of needing to be right, or at least seen to be right. You have been raised to practice humility. You have died to suspicion and dissension that destroys community. You have been raised to a new unity, a new solidarity, a new spirit-shaped life called koinonia. Paul's logic on the gritty reality of discipleship is tight. Jesus is alive. The resurrection is true. If being a disciple grips you, nothing else matters. Costly discipleship. I, too, would have turned back when my pursuer broke through the ice. I would have put my foot on his head and held him under, said an Asian pastor addressing a conference of Asian pastors in Canada meeting in Roster in Saskatchewan and hosted by Mennonite pastors. Before coming to Christian faith and becoming a Christian minister, the guest speaker had led a violent life in a dog-eat-dog profession. Now he was telling the story that changed him from being a nominal Christian to a radical disciple. When I heard this bit of Dutch history, it challenged my basic survival assumptions, he said. It revolutionized my life and how I read the Gospels. Here is how he tells the decisive story. A man is imprisoned for his faith and hosting secret meetings of a house church in his home. Somehow he is able to escape from a window with a knotted bedsheet and make a run for it, but he is discovered and pursued by a sheriff and his deputy. Starved to skin and bones, he runs lightly across the thin ice of the moat but the well-fed deputy breaks through and is sinking beneath the ice while his commander, the sheriff, shouts orders from the shore. The escaping prisoner turns back and plants his foot on the man's head, holds him underwater, then kicks his body under the ice and makes good his escape. At least, that's what I would have done, confesses the pastor. But that is not what the man in the story did. The real story comes as a total surprise. Instead of ignoring or drowning the helpless pursuer, the fugitive turns back, reaches out, and pulls the deputy to safety on the firm ice. The sheriff shouts, Arrest that man! And the deputy seizes his savior and takes him back to be burned at the stake in a long and painful death. The drowning man he saved becomes his executioner. He did what was right without considering the unknown but possible consequences. That is how a follower of Jesus treats his enemies, the pastor concluded. The enemy is not an abstraction or hypothetical for this pastor. As a former member of the Communist Party, his conversion to Christianity cost him his safety. He made many enemies when he left the party. His new understanding of Jesus' teaching ended reliance on violence but opened up a new world of a kingdom of love for the enemy. The audience of Anabaptist pastors, familiar with the account from The Martyr's Mirror of Dirk Wilms and his rescue of the enemy and his death by fire, heard it told as if for the first time. It was the essence of costly discipleship. Give up your agendas and trust Jesus for his.